No one has a right to judge your pain. Your pain is real, and it's not your fault. I'm Carol Johnson, and this is Hello Uterus. Today, we're joined by Dr. Sandy Hilton, a pelvic pain physical therapist who has graciously taken time to share with us answers to questions that we for sure do not get the time or opportunity to ask in most consultations. But before we head to her gorgeous therapy studio in Chicago, it's time for Uterus in the News. If I don't break things during this Uterus in the News segment, consider it a great exercise in self-control because you're about to find out. Mifeprestone is one of two medications used in a medication abortion. It's also referred to as the abortion pill. It blocks progesterone, a hormone that is required in order to sustain a pregnancy. Throughout time, and we all know this, there has been in place a standard medicating before operating, right? You have to do a medical therapy before you can do a surgical therapy. And we're like, no, we don't want to take birth control pills anymore. No, we don't want to do this anymore. And, and doctors are like, nope, 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 nope. You need to follow the rules, right? So for many conditions, not a condition, a procedure that treats many conditions, it's a multitasker, right? It's a multitasker. We're often not allowed to skip over the medicating portion, right? We have to go with the medical therapy, even if we don't want to use it. And we have to follow these rules, right? So amazing how sometimes rules can just be like melted and destroyed. And anyway, so you're experiencing a spontaneous abortion, for an example. The protocol might be, depending on your unique situation, for sure, medication before, say, a D&C or you need to terminate a pregnancy in the first several weeks for whatever the reason. Mifeprestone will be one part of that two-part medical therapy that you use to terminate the pregnancy. This drug has been safe and legal in the United States since the FDA approved it about 20 years ago, following a review of the evidence that medical management of abortion is a safe, effective way to end pregnancy and that this drug should have a generic version. And with the arrival of COVID, Mifeprestone was able to be mailed to you. So you didn't have to go into a physician's office or to a pharmacy in person to receive this. All very good productive things, right? To take care of people's health in a way that is easiest for them and most accessible. But mifeprestone isn't just used for medicating abortion. Caroline Hopkins of NBC News wrote a piece back in June on the hellscape created by the reversal of Roe specific to clinical trials involving Gulf War veterans. These trials are now in danger of being shelved because of the potential for a federal ban. So one of the trials that she is running is it has to do with a lot of these conditions that people came back from the Gulf War with. And the feeling is that the exposure to the chemicals and the burn pits and things like that created a wide variety of problematic chronic conditions and cancers are responding to, or that may respond to treatments like mifeprestone, right? Which is fascinating, isn't it? Because 
not a doctor here, not a research scientist, but I am connecting the dots on how like burn pits and chemicals and all that stuff seems to be really disruptive to our hormone system. You get where I'm going, right? And that there are a wide variety of drugs that can be used to um, to help protect our bodies as a result of exposure to these endocrine disrupting chemicals. Anyway, having too much cortisol circulating in your body can contribute to a bunch of illnesses and syndromes and conditions. And the fuprestone provides a way to block the receptors cortisol needs in order to act on the variety of systems in our body. At a slightly higher dosage than the one approved for abortion, mifeprestone is also FDA approved to treat Cushing's syndrome, a condition involving excess cortisol. So here we have an approved drug that can be deployed to treat other conditions and if outlawed, abortion and other conditions like Cushing's syndrome won't be able to benefit from that approved drug. They didn't think this through. They didn't think this through, probably because it was never their intention to either improve or minimize the disruption to female health care. Not at all their question, at all. It is really, really shocking when you sort of pull back and you take a bird's eye view of this and you take the time to consider how many problems are going to unfold from this decision. Like we're just, we are just realizing the myriad of issues that are going to crop up, both issues that people are experiencing in ER rooms and in doctor consultations across the country, but also in our research laboratories. Like they need any more difficulties to deal with. The future of our species relies upon what researchers discover in their laboratories. And it's just incredible to me that a federal ban could end up making that, take away that benefit to that research, end that research. Much like a federal ban on cannabis did not allow for any federally funded research of cannabis. What a wasted opportunity. It's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Powerful people saw abortion as a wedge issue, one that they could hijack and use to make themselves look as if they care about life. But how can they care about life when people are dying as a direct result of their actions? It doesn't stop at overturning Roe. We know that it's not going to stop at overturning Roe. It continues with challenges to access to drugs like mifepristone, and it will also make it so much more difficult for physicians to provide excellent, modern, gold standard care to their patients. Like these people that are running this this quest to force us back in time are living in the 1500s where one didn't have to consider the complexity of today's health system. Right? You make a decision in the 1500s, it's going to take five months just to get it from the city out to the villages. Like here, you make a decision and it's instantly implemented. And then the systems that it impacts begin to shake under the weight of that new decision. In this case, the repeal of Roe. And those systems are shaking. They are shaking. It's, boy, it's not good. But I'm about to introduce the next level of insanity to you. And I I wish I could just say that this is like a joke. It's like Saturday Night Live or something, but it's not. And we need to know. We need to be aware of what's going on. And I get that it's so hard to keep up. So hopefully this information is helpful, even though I'm sure it is not going to be comforting. 
Alliance Defending Freedom. <laughs> I can't even with that name. It's like, ay, ay, ay. Anyway, they're a conservative group, as if I needed to say that, that has been involved in anti-abortion litigation. And last Friday, November 18th, they filed a lawsuit in Amarillo, Texas, on behalf of four anti-abortion medical organizations and four doctors who had treated patients with the drug, Mifeprestone. The suit also named the Health and Human Services Department as a defendant. The suit claims that the FDA lacked the authority to approve the drug, (laughs) which is hilarious, and B, did not adequately study the medication, and C, that the drug is unsafe. Okay. More than half the abortions in the United States are performed using mifepristone. Mifepristone has like a like a spotless safety record. Like if if they're going on that claim and they were in like a legitimate court of law, it would be dismissed. We got to pretend like it has a chance to succeed because we've seen what happens when we don't treat these ridiculous threats seriously. So I just want to read a quote from the lawsuit and then a quote from a senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom. The FDA failed America's women and girls when it chose politics over science and approved chemical abortion drugs for use in the United States. I'm sorry, what? Are these people high? It's like they just put ludicrous sentences out there. And then just expect that, like, we can't actually do anything with them because it's total gaslighting. And then we'll be in this, like, state of chaos trying to figure out, like, are they high or are we high? Anyway, no, the FDA did not put politics over science. They actually studied it. Pregnancy is a life-threatening condition, okay? Pregnancy is not all bonbons and eat as much ice cream as you want, put your feet up and everyone gets like fuzzy slippers and soft little things to sit on. No, like that's in fantasy land. That's on like celebrity blogs and on shows like the Kardashians. I mean, pregnancy is so taxing on the body. The Kardashians actually like hired people to be surrogates for them to have babies. I mean, like this is so ridiculous that people consider pregnancy to be this walk in the park. So anyway, pregnancy is a life-threatening condition. Illnesses result when pregnant people can't be treated with modern life-saving care. So then, yeah, yeah, it actually does result in life-threatening illnesses. But before life-threatening illnesses result, the condition itself of pregnancy is a life-threatening condition. And in the United States, more so than virtually any other country in the world, our maternal mortality rate for pregnancy is pathetic. So Julie Marie, just Julie Marie Blake, Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel, wants to school us on the clinical aspects of pregnancy. And this is a quote from her. I would like to have her on this show, but see, that's that's like a line I'm not gonna cross because then you all are gonna see a side of me that I would prefer to just only be seen in the gym or like when I'm climbing a mountain or something. Here's what Julie Marie says. Pregnancy is not an illness and chemical abortion drugs don't provide a therapeutic benefit. They end a baby's life and they pose serious and life-threatening complications to the mother. Oh, honey, 
<laughs> Come on. Willfully ignorant of the common occurrence of spontaneous abortion, which, if not complete, may endanger the life of the pregnant person. This happens all the time, Julie Marie, all the time, these people. Chemical abortion drugs don't provide a therapeutic benefit. You want to make a bet on that, Julie Marie? You want to talk to the person who's bleeding out in a bathtub because they have an incomplete, spontaneous abortion? Abortion is a thing the body does, Julie Marie. You want to talk to that person and find out if they might realize a therapeutic benefit from taking a drug that you want to take out of society, that you want to make illegal? Man, I'm not a day drinker, but I swear I would grab a cocktail. I would grab a cocktail to read you this list of those supporting this ridiculous lawsuit. These are the people that Julie Marie Blake is representing. Hold tight. I'm, I'm not kidding. Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. Hmm. American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. I mean, what? Pro-life obstetricians and gynecologists? Like, what does that mean? What the does that mean? So that means that if I'm experiencing an incomplete abortion, you're just going to let me bleed out and die because you're pro-life? The third organization, the American College of Pediatricians. And then finally, oh, I didn't even know these guys existed. Christian Medical and Dental Associations. What? The Christian Medical and Dental Association? I mean, are you kidding me? I just can't even. The cool thing is that this lawsuit, it's not going to succeed because we're not going to let it succeed. And hopefully Julie Marie Blake will learn from her mistake and decide that she's going to go and repent. And she's going to, I don't know, drive home abortion kits door to door and hand them out. Do something productive, okay? With your life, because we live in 2022, where we understand a lot more about our body than they did in the 1500s, and we have medications and surgeries and all kinds of things that we can take take advantage of, even though they're ridiculously expensive and far, and and insurance companies make far too much freaking cash off of all of this. But you, you Julie Marie Blake, and your your ridiculous little lawsuit, it's going to fail, and you're not going to take this drug out of circulation. And you should go back to school and learn a little bit about biology. Goodness. Okay, I'm going to go take three cleansing breaths. And then we're going to be back with Dr. Sandy Hilton. There's no easier way to make sure that your beauty and personal care products are what they should be, safe and good for you, than finding a source you trust that does all the homework for you. That source is Beauty Heroes, a healthy beauty retailer that carries over 120 brands from around the world featuring truly all good for you skin, body, sun, and hair care. They screen for harmful ingredients, sneaky fragrance, petroleum-based ingredients, and other estrogenic ingredients for you so you don't have to decipher ingredient list. They have a well-stocked online store and a really unique beauty subscription service that is a huge value, delivering founder Jeannie Jarno's Hero Products in a well-curated box that is all about quality, not quantity. Take a look at their selection and save 15% on your first purchase from their beauty store or on your first subscription with the code UTERINKIND at checkout. Visit beauty-heroes.com. That's beauty a dash 
H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Thank you. Now let's get back to the show. I'm so excited to bring today's guest to you, Dr. Sandy Hilton. Sandy graduated with a Master of Science in Physical Therapy from Pacific University, and she received her Doctor of Physical Therapy degree from Des Moines University. Sandy has co-authored an amazing book, super helpful, called Why Pelvic Pain Hurts. And, and People who are experiencing pelvic pain utilize this book, and also physicians and other therapists utilize this book to help their patients. She's also an instructor and speaker on treating pelvic pain for both professionals and for public education around the world. And she's the founder of Entropy Physiotherapy, a physical therapy clinic that is so gorgeous. I want to grab my bed and all my dishes and stuff. And I want to set it up in your clinic and make it my house. <laughs> How's that? Can we, can we do that, Sandy? Well, the, you would need a, a shower in your own bathroom and a washer and dryer. Otherwise, yes. Details, details. We can figure those out. Yeah, little details. Excellent. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. We appreciate your wisdom that you're going to share with us. And we appreciate learning about pelvic health from someone who stays on top of the latest research. So I want to start with something that I think we are all desperate to have the world's greatest comeback to. And it's that phrase, it's all in your head. As a Mm. patient, that feels so dismissive and gross and it's gaslighting, but it's also dismissive of science. It suggests that the head or the brain is separate from the rest of the body. So can we start with giving people a classic response to the phrase, should they hear it, it's all in your head? Oh, if I'm being irreverent, it would be yes, because that's where my brain is. But (laughs) (laughs) Good one. (laughs) I like like what your, that dismissive point is true because it also, it's like, it's not even acknowledging how amazing we are as a a whole person where we have not just little bits of us, but everything works together. So we need our brain to be able to know where our hands are and how to use them, but we can't not understand all of the things that happen in our hands. So it's always both of it and our consciousness and our thoughts and our expectations. So it's just that comment isn't just dismissive of the pain you may feel or the problems you're having. It's dismissive of you as a, as a more than just your parts right. person. Right. An integrated system. Like, yes, we need our brains and thank goodness. So you'd never be able to drink a cup of coffee, but we aren't just that. And we aren't just the bits of us. We're more than that, which is both fabulous and challenging when it gets a little off. Absolutely. So how does the brain and the body communicate around and about pain? (laughs) (laughs) I would love to have a very easy, accurate, defensible to everyone answer to that question. But that's almost the question of what you're really asking is, what is the state of pain in a conscious person? You have to go into philosophy to really get very far in that discussion because we are talking about consciousness and meaning and expectations, all of which appear to be, at least in part, driven by things like your amygdala and your hypothalamus and the retina activating system and all of these parts of 
what lives in the space inside our skull, but also communicates through the spinal cord and out to every little nerve in you. In these non-linear, fabulous, everything's happening at one time, communication systems that turn responses up or down, and we don't even have to think about them, which is great because they ha- mm-hmm. we, we couldn't exist if we had to consciously do a lot of the things that just happen inside of us and around us. So how does the brain, uh, what's the brain's role in that would be, it appears to be some, like a dimmer switch can turn things up or down, controls the release of some of the chemicals that can make us more or like less likely to hurt. And it works both ways. So even if you're like, oh, my nervous system's upregulated, it's one of the terms you'll see. It doesn't mean it's stuck like that. And it also can be turned down because everything works both directions. When you say my nervous system is upregulated, what would that, what's an, a description of how that feels like, what that feels like? Have you ever had someone sneak up behind you and give you a hug and you jump? That's like you didn't expect it yeah. and you have a, a startle response. That startle response is normal. That could be right. the person you trust most on this planet. You still have that startle reflex. That's a reflex. They can get upregulated. They can get turned up to where you'd like startle if a door closed or someone says that you care about very much, says, I'm going to walk up to you and hug you. And you still go, "Eh." that would be an upregulated system. So it's something that belongs there. It's just too much. Yeah. So I can see how, so it, would it be accurate to say that if somebody was living with a chronic condition like endometriosis, that they might be in that constant state? Yeah, a little more, which they've, which is reasonable. It's like, and I try and really explain that to people. It's like, this isn't a broken thing. It's a thing that's just doing it too much, too often for too long. And mm-hmm. it's out of proportion. If you have endometrial tissue squishing something, we need to know that so we can get the pressure off. So the part that is being overpressured, whether that be a piece of bowel or the connections from your bladder to outside or from your kidneys to your bladder or a fallopian tube, if there's pressure on something from endometrial tissue, we need to remove that pressure. And it doesn't necessarily have to hurt. So this is specific to endometriosis. There's really good research now about how how disconnected the amount of endometrial tissue is from pain. You can have someone with lots of deep infiltrating endo and no pain. And you're going to have people with tons of pain and they go in to try and help them and they don't find very much. We knew research is, is really lots of that evidence saying the pain and the amount of endometrial tissue are not proportional, which is super good news. For people who think, but I hurt so bad, and they went and looked, they must have missed it, and because that would be a logical conclusion, but it's not. It's that, yeah, bodies are weird, and you hurt a lot, and they didn't necessarily miss anything. They're both true. So does that, even though I know we don't necessarily have, that we don't have definitive answers to what I'm asking, so I guess I have to ask, or or I have to give a disclaimer. We're just theorizing here. But does, so that particular example, I'm so glad that you raised that, the idea that some people can have deep infiltrating endo and it can be horrible and they can have no pain and others can have tiny amounts of endo and have lots of pain. So does that get back to whether or not that 
nervous system or not whether or not, but how that nervous system is responding to the physical presence of endo? I think that's a reasonable question. That was poorly asked. No, it's actually a great great question. It is unanswerable from my ability to test that, but it makes sense. One of the things like, is that the hormone load that changes cyclically as we go through the cycles? Is it that the endometrial tissue is there or is it that your estrogen and progesterone levels are changing? And was the anti-inflammatory part of estrogen protecting you from being bothered by that tissue? And then as the level drops, is that why you hurt? Or is there something else going on? Or there are really clever people trying to figure that out, but I I'm not one of them. <laughs> Just the very practical PT on the other side of it going, let's help you not hurt. Let's help you not suffer while we come up to this answer. Yeah. And also you, you brought up hormones and talking about like, we're talking about structural, it's the word sort of structural issues <laughs> where you have endometriosis or maybe you have fibroid pressing on a nerve or something and we've got these structural issues but then we also have these chemical issues to contend with meaning the hormones that are circulating throughout the body and the the hormones that regulate or respond to how we feel about pain i'm struggling in asking the questions because i'm just realizing like it's like what happens first does the pain happen first or does all the screwiness happen first who knows? That's a fabulous, fabulous question. So again, infinitely practical physical therapist, you can get better without knowing the answer to that question. So that can be a really fun question yeah. <laughs> and you can get better without knowing it, the answer, because I don't know if it's an answerable question. And that is a, that is a phrase I learned from one of my research friends that really has saved me a lot of headaches over the last decade of when I just can't figure something out. It's like, oh, we might not know enough to ask the right question in order to be able to figure it out. And maybe why I get so frustrated of not being able to figure it out is that it's an unanswerable question right now because we haven't asked the right question or we don't have enough information to form an answerable question. Okay. And infinitely practical physical therapist, what can we do about it right now? Because you hurt and you don't need to keep hurting. Hurting is not (laughs) helpful when we know you haven't actually just stepped on a nail but it feels like you did. Check to make sure there's no nail. Excellent. Let's get that pain gone or at least way down. And then the other (laughs) big part of that, I think, especially, well, for any pain, but especially with pelvic or visceral pain is how many ways can I teach you to do that for yourself so that when you hurt, you can help yourself in that moment and not have to endure until you get to someone who can help you, which is a fabulous first step. Finding someone who can help you is fabulous. But ultimately, the goal is how do we help you not need us? Yeah. And I love the idea of thinking down the road, what happens when you exercise that sort of brain-body connection and build that muscle to communicate intimately with your own system that over time, do you become like a superhero? I just yes. want to go with, yes, yeah, absolutely do. you become a superhero and and it's all awesome. So what? first, let's start out with what is most misunderstood about pelvic pain. And you can take that from a physician and a patient perspective. Can I do societal first? We'll start really big and then go small. Sure. I just found out recently, like a couple of weeks ago, that there is historical precedence that it was considered immoral to try and help women with period pain or pain in pregnancy. 
my God. And because can, can you excuse me for a second while I go beat my head against the wall? <laughs> well, I was what reading the? I was reading a book on the, the history and I just I swear I was staring at that page for like ten minutes, swearing oh, for a large part. I can totally understand why. But then you, it's like Darn it. Because I always wondered why, as someone said recently, why are there three societies and journals devoted to headaches and none to menstrual pain? (laughs) Yeah, we can answer that question in one word, actually. But also written in this, and I I will email you the, I'll I'll send, take a picture of that page so you too can stare at it and swear. The historical, (laughs) just share the love, share the love. But it's like, well, because you think, why isn't this in our education, in our own education? Because it's not in the physician's education. Why is it not in the physician's education? Well, because they were purposely not doing it for centuries. So it's like, right. Oh, so it really is in 2022, where we now have a World Congress on Pain, posters of fabulous work done on how do we predict and prevent menstrual pain, and how do we address period pain right away so that it's not bothering and a problem, that that's new. And you would think that it wouldn't be new, but it actually is new, because it is just now gathering the momentum to overcome those centuries of this is something we are not going to address. I mean, like part of my heart just breaks when I say that, but also, yay, we are not there anymore. So yay. Yeah. <laughs> so that, so that's society and training program. Yeah, I, I totally know what you're saying. Yeah. It's like a pendulum when you recognize something and you're like, wow, that was really dark and ugly. Gosh. And then it's like, okay, I'm really glad it's not like that anymore. But that. And we have an obligation. I feel like I collect to honor it, recognize it, and then to teach people like what you just did there with the why is this happening? Oh, because this happened. And then why did that happen? Oh, because this happened. We have to do that all the time when it comes to talking about our female systems because we've been kind of trained to not question anything. That and we are the butt of all the jokes, sort of weird phrasing of that. But we're the target. You want to make fun of something, you call it a girl. Oh, you throw like a girl or you run like a girl or a current kerfluffle on social media is a phrase that I grew up using. And now I'm like, well, I have to de-adopt this and pull it out of my vocabulary. And it's a whole 48 hours old. So I'm not good at it yet, but... I grew up with people saying, don't get your knickers in a twist or don't get your panties all twisted or things like that. And just realized that right. that is considered by some people to be a misogynistic, minimalistic thing. And so I'm like having to go through my brain, like the thing in Harry Potter where they pull memories out. <laughs> like I have this ingrained yep. phrase yep. that meant you're getting really worked up, calm down. I no longer call people hysterical because I realized the but he was like, oh, that's hysterical. And it's like, wait, that is a phrase that was based on saying women overdo it. So we're just going to remove that from our vocabulary. And now I get to remove this phrase from my vocabulary. But until you know, you don't know. Once you know, you are obligated to change. So it's my very own, like this is literally 72, 48 hours old of, oh my God, I've been saying that for years. And I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that it was a minimizing misogynistic kind of thing. And now I can't not see it. So sorry for that too. <laughs> but, but it's like, there's so much of that. Yeah. Same with me and the word stupid. Yeah. And then you have to like, you start to type it and you're like, nope, 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 not that word, not that word. What am I actually trying to say? 
exactly. That what you just said is th- that's the key is what what are you trying to say, which is what helps us exercise our thinking and it and it's kind of respectful to ourselves to allow us uh, to trust that we can identify what it is that we really need to say in that moment. I think that's so important, especially when it comes to communicating your symptoms to physicians and such that well, we minimize our own symptoms, but what we can sort of like beat ourselves up in that communication, right? And it's, oh, we need to not do that. So because we because we do the thing, we've been trained to do the thing from the very beginning. We've been trained. See, I was like, I could talk about this forever. We've been trained. So even like sitting, like how is how's a lady supposed to sit? I went to an all-girls Catholic school and we had tea. <laughs> I am like ancient, so there was actually tea. You know, you see, you are it. not ancient. <laughs> I'm, f- I'm 58, and I, lo- I earned every single year of it. I'm going to be turning 59 soon, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not hiding behind that. I earned these years. Every single gray hair and whatever earned them. They all have stories. But we've been trained. I've been trained my entire life that if you're going to sit, you all can't see, but I have just fixed my posture. My ankles are beautifully crossed. My knees are together, slightly off to the side, so you look really nice in pictures, right? Guys don't have to do that. And do you know how hard the effort, the physiological effort of holding your legs in that position is a cost, but sitting and doing the traditional man spread is less cost. So even how we were trained from little tiny girls of how to sit costs us more than not doing that. And when I was thinking about that, I was like, darn it. Like my whole entire life, you're like, sit like you have a mini skirt on, but that's increased tone through your pelvis right. and your lower Not a lot, but it is. It's effort because that's not the natural human sitting position. That's a socialized position for girls. And so you start looking at stuff like that. It's like, hmm. right. So I keep saying, and then, then I call it man spreading, but like, I'm going to start call it human spreading. I don't want to jump ahead, but I am starting to connect the dots on how these little micro movements or micro holds that we that we allow uh, that we sort of unconsciously are it's happening in our body without us really even being aware of it how bad that can get when you also fold in a chronic condition you know because then you're you're also right there's no room and then you're also folding in on top of that the fear around not really understanding the condition not knowing if there's anything that's going to be done okay we're we're jumping ahead let's stay so we started at the social level okay yeah i could talk to you for t- 42 million days um <laughs> i know we could just do this forever we'll just break it up into as many pieces as you need the so the social, it's like how that system that we work through, the organizational bits over the whole planet. And then we take it, so bring it back down into the U.S. because that's where I live, of habits that that individual has learned over time. The It's expected that if you're female, you will have pain with your period unless you're lucky. And you may leak unless you're lucky. So the expectation is that these things are going to be a problem. Or that if they're a problem, that's just how it goes. And don't complain about it because that's what everyone has to deal with. That's changing a lot. And But then in our own selves, because we don't get the education as a human, I'm lucky to have pursued pelvic health and learned all these things like, whoa, the clitoris is massive and this is how this works and that's how that's connected. And I didn't get any of that in health. I didn't get any of that in college level biology. Right. I got if you look at the 
no, I know all my friends who write these books, I apologize. But if you look at the orthopedic textbooks on hip and pelvic pain, the inside's not there. It's like, it's right. the glutes and the hip rotators and all of the structures for the actual hip joint, but the pelvic bowl and the inside of the pelvis and the structures around the genital urinary systems are not there. And yeah. so how would, how is that not being presented even to the health professionals you see? Pelvic health is the specialty off to the side that those crazy people who don't mind putting their fingers in places deal, but we're not going to go there. And I would love to see it in our professional training, right up there with jaws and knees and ankles. And don't do internal work if it makes you uncomfortable because we never force anything. But acknowledging the systems and their importance would stop. This would be preventative because then we would help young girls who start leaking when they do gymnastics to stay in their sport because they could get help. People who get period pain so bad they miss school to not not have to miss school, not have to lose those social connections and get behind in studies and feel broken. Those are horrible right. that it exists because it doesn't have to. And then as that human that's feeling those things, you don't understand how your body works because you're not told. We don't come with an instruction manual. It'd be very large right. and lots of unknowns. And it just adds confusion to mystery and those messages and the your grandparents, how they were raised and all of those things make it less accessible to be able to help yourself instead of more accessible to be able to help yourself. And I think we can really, like what you're doing, is a phenomenal way to stop that and get the information where it's needed. I hope that brought it all back. Absolutely. And it leads me to want to share one of the things that inspired us to start Uterine Kind and Hello Uterus, and specifically the name Hello Uterus, was because in my market research that I had done and in the interviews that I've done with patients, I heard repeatedly people say that they hate their uterus. When I hear some, yeah, and I, when I hear someone say like, I hate myself, that's a very hard, that's a very hard thing to hear, right? And you just want to help that person, but they don't necessarily connect that saying that you hate the uterus. I would say that it, the uterus is as angry as you are by the fact that society and the healthcare system have let you down because it's often not the uterus is, is getting the, kicked out of it as much as every other part of your body. So I, I really love that you bring this whole holistic, whole sort of awareness to someone's condition, to how they think about it, and to connect all of those dots within the body. I just think that is so cool. I'm grateful that I don't have chronic pelvic pain, but I swear to God, part of me wants to because I want to experience what I've listened to some of your patient testimonials and <laughs> no, just, just, just trust people. I know. I don't want it. No. Yeah. Right. I just, but it's, it's so fascinating. That's the people. So you're one of those people that if I say, oh my God, I think this tastes horrible and hand it to you, you would try it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, as long as it's not a sea urchin. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I will never, ever try is a sea urchin. Does this milk smell bad? Um, I don't fall for that anymore. So now, can you help us understand how chronic inflammation, which is also sort of this loosey-goosey kind of thing that we hear all the time, but we can't really picture it, how chronic inflammation can cause chronic pain and what can that feel like on, on multiple levels? You ask really good questions. 
how, so what is chronic inflammation? It is both peripheral and central maybe. So there's, there's per, you have peripheral nerves. You have the nerves that come off the spinal cord and go out everywhere. They're literally everywhere. And then you have the central nervous system, which is the spinal cord and the brain structures. So the, there is peripheral nerve chronic inflammation and there are, oh, we're going to get fancy. There is a neuroimmune system that is part of why things can stay inflamed. And that is also everywhere. We imagine nerves like it's a string, like a piece of spaghetti, but it's not. It's like these lots of tendrils going out in all different directions, but we draw them like they're this straight line. But then wrapped around all of that are all these neuroimmune cells the glial cells, like your nerve can be fine. Like you're doing squats and it feels great and all this stuff. And then later, not because the muscles got sore, but just irritation. You can pay for it later with like, everything is more tender, more painful. You have less tolerance. It just gets gross. That seems like, and I will asterisk by that because research continues to develop. It seems like that is more of a neuroimmune influence than physical structures being unfit along that neural pathway. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And the viscera is the same. So yeah. bladder or uterus or bowel can have that same, the nerves around them are irritating everything else. So there's almost two different problems. There's the tissues themselves that need to get more fit and tolerate normal pressures and be able to tolerate movement. And then there's this system that can keep, this is not how it works, but it's the cartoon in my head. It can, like the little gremlin goes and turns the dial up on inflammation for no reason whatsoever. It just does it. We have to turn that back down. And that can happen in the area where you hurt and it can happen at the spinal cord level and it can happen in the cortical structures in your brain. Because why not? Why not have it be lots of possibilities? A friend of mine said once that if our, they're all protective, those are protective systems, but they get too much. They're not broken. They're, they're supposed to be there, but they're just, just too much. He made a comment once when in my frustration, I was like, and he's like, if our, or if our computers were as protected as we are, no one would ever be able to hack into a computer. There are so many layers of protection. And I'm like, that is intriguing, but also doesn't make me less frustrated because <laughs> there, yeah. are, there are so many, there's peripheral protective mechanisms, there's spinal cord protective mechanisms, there's cortical protective mechanisms. And they, they're so good at their job that we could think about the person that I just saw this morning, you could think about having sex and it can make you hurt. Like nothing even actually right. had to physically happen, but you're so good at protecting that the thought needs to be protected against by local swelling and local muscle changes right in the area of your pain. Nothing's wrong with those tissues. Like we wouldn't be able to see it on in any imaging, but there is increased swelling. You could measure it. There's muscles that are guarding that don't technically need to be because they're responding to that chemical flush of, of a protective response that is happening out of proportion or even when it doesn't need to happen. That's my current explanation for how that all works. Five years ago, I explained it differently. I hope five years from now, I explain it even better because we're learning more all the time. 
Exactly. We're never going to run out of things to talk <laughs> about because we're still in the we're still in the wild west of discovering our systems. And yeah, there's so much we don't know. And and having grown up in the age that I grew up in as a Gen Xer, we were conditioned to believe that it wasn't our place to know. You know, doctors were doctors were gods. And they were capable of doing everything and anything. And that set up this really untenable. So again, so many people I've interviewed where they've gone to 10 doctors and not getting diagnosed and dealing with all this stuff. And then I say like, okay, how do you feel about your physician? Well, I, I trust, I trust him a hundred percent. He delivered my mom and he delivered my great, 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 great grandmother. And it's like this 157 year old guy walking around and you're like, I'm all in with this one. Right. So I want to ask you a question about something that you said. And again, I know that we don't have any data here. And I also want to have a disclaimer first. This question does not is not to suggest that we manufacture pain, that you know we're pain pill seekers or that we're manufacturing pain for some other reason. But you said that that you could bring up the conversation with me about painful sex and it's just the conversation. It's not the sex itself. And I can still feel pain. Is the reverse true? Can I descend into a part of my body and release the pain to some degree with my own brain? Why not? Yes. Because it works both ways. One would be a conscious choice that you would then practice so much that it becomes a habit because the other is unconscious too. We are not consciously saying, oh no, I have just thought about sex. Let me inflame my left pudendal neural sheath. Right. Like if you can do that, don't use it like that. That's um, so cool. The, so that, right. That's not a thing that, that we consciously do. You're not choosing to hurt. You're not thinking wrong. You're not failing to think right. It's just these reflexive protective responses that get out of proportion. And they do work both ways because those expectations, if you were like Andy Clark is a researcher that I, I'm fascinated by his work. And in, in his book, Surfing Uncertainty, he has a, a talks about if someone wakes up in the morning and they usually hurt in the afternoon, like their back hurts in the afternoon, that there is already measurable changes in pro-inflammatory mediators and muscle guarding and movement pattern changes based on prior experiences and a learned response that I should start guarding that part of me because by this afternoon, it's going to hurt, which is fabulous. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Could, right? How efficient is that system? Then, except for it's in, in this instance, unhelpful. So it's efficiently not helping you. So then what if we just what if we just put a maybe there? Like maybe if I think about sex, it'll hurt. How many ways can I think about sex and have it not hurt? This is where taking these thoughts and talk, using them to talk about back pain or shoulder pain or foot pain is a whole lot easier because when we use it for bladders and bowels and sexual function, it gets a little awkward, funny, hilarious, depending on your sense of humor and privacy. But like how would, so how just spend some time every day imagining pleasurable sex and that would help. Right. Because there's every reason to think that it would. Yeah, absolutely. Purposely practicing pleasure, joy, happiness. I just had a conversation about the meaning of those words. So now I just use all of them <laughs> because they are, they are charged. Yeah. Throwing gratitude in there. They are socially charged words. So purposefully practicing those things can have a buffering response. So it'd be good for us to do, do things that feel good, purposefully feel good in that area that normally hurts. 
like touch it in a way that feels good. Think about it feeling good. Doing all of those things helps to change that. I think that it helps to change that neuroimmune response, this giant asterisk. I might find out that I'm wrong and have to change my words, but in this moment, that's how I think it's working, which is really super fabulous news for us being able to manage that on our own for ourselves and not needing any special equipment or permission or provider, but a power that we have in our own selves to just what you said, turn that to the other direction. So I think it's super fabulous. As you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, we do that with our kids and with our animals. Like I remember I had a few large dogs in my life and I, they had bad experiences getting their nails cut and I had to sort of retrain them to love me touching their feet and so that I could cut their nails. And it's it's not an apples to apples, but it's just that idea of like unwinding some conditioning that has gotten embedded, not just in our mind, but also in our brains and then also in our physical bodies, you know, that that idea that the dog is going to pull the paw out and sort of retreat. So that that is wild. Can you answer, I'm not even going to ask you, I'm not going to say, can you answer the question, can you theorize? And then you can let us know if you have the <laughs> research on this. Why is pain so exhausting? Like, why is it so, I can't think of anything that is as exhausting as pain. I can answer that question. And we do have the research for research for it because- Chronic pain, especially. Yeah, because there's- there is a cost, there's a metabolic and a physical cost to hurting. It requires resources. It is not supposed to be sustained. The sustaining of it has a metabolic, I mean, it's not going to help you lose weight because of course not, but it's, it doesn't have that kind of calorie burning, but an effort and a taking of attention of things that could otherwise be spent elsewhere and a suffering and literally chemical changes and structural changes in your body in response to and also because of hurting. So it's again another two-way street. Do you yeah. is are your muscles tight because you hurt or do you hurt because your muscles are tight? Infinitely practical me would say, I don't know, let's make them not tight anymore and see what happens. But right. the we may never be able to answer that. However, Yes, there's a cost. It is exhausting, but it's not supposed to be sustained. The best non-threatening example of that is when we talk about like hugs. Hugs are fabulous and then they get weird and then you start throwing elbows to make them <laughs> let go of you. Um, there is a cost to the sustained thing that was once good or, or chocolate chip cookie dough, which I love. And some is good, but more is not. It's one of the only things that I remembered in economics, the, it's diminishing returns. Yes, yes. Yeah. The cost-benefit ratio is whacked and there is a massive law of diminishing returns. Yep. Yeah. But in the short term, it's fabulous because it's why we how we protect ourselves. Like, I just stepped on something sharp and we withdraw before it even pierces our skin. Brilliant. Right. And before, sometimes before we are even conscious that we stepped on it, you know? Right? like You it's don't like even know instant. you've already withdrawn. It's, but if you did that yeah. every time you stepped for 14 right. years... <laughs> It's not okay anymore. Yeah, that's a crystal clear. That is just, you're so good at these metaphors. That's crystal clear that the impact would be consistent with what you would need to do if every time you made a movement, you experienced pain and reacted to it. They do that to be cruel. I mean, that's a cruel thing if you did that to somebody else. It is exhausting and brutal inside our own selves too. 
Uh, and it's not on purpose. It's a reflexive response that's gone wrong. Wow, never actually thought about the torture. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, that it is torture. Gosh. I think of that so many, and I keep trying to de-threaten, right? So let's make that not scary in, in an absurd example. So, you know, I have a little kid and they're afraid of something in their room and we calm them down and we go turn on the light and look at the shadow and see what it is. And we make sense of it. So it's not, they still might not like it, but it's not a monster. And, but if every time we walked in that room, we'd say, how's the monster? Is there a monster tonight? What about now? And you calm them down, you stuck <laughs> your head back in the room and say, is it gone? That upregulating their nervous system and it's really mean. Freak them out and calm them down at the same time. <laughs> we kind of do it in our own selves. So it's fun. You have to do it nicely when you find it in you. It's like, oh, I'm doing that thing. Okay, let me turn this around and think of it a different way, which is why I, I'd love like pain-informed psychologists and counselors and sexual therapists and that can help you find those things and change the wording around them or change the meaning around them so that you are more compassionate inside yourself, just as we would want to be with anyone else. But it's, it's hard. It's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And if not addressed, if the pain is medicated, let's say, so you're just you know, popping Advil or whatever, and maybe you can or cannot get in front of it. But And I'm talking about chronic pain, not just mm -hmm. I have a headache, takes my Advil, goes away. How can pain affect our bodies over the long haul? We have less cognitive function. It takes too much. Remember the old, the old movies where computers were a whole room of these computer banks? It just takes more and more of that the system's work and attention and effort to manage the pain, which leaves us less for everything else, like enjoying a movie or reading a book or liking our favorite song or enjoying dinner with a friend. It just sucks resources from us. Yeah, that makes sense and goes back to the exhaustion aspect of it. I mean, just like being sad, grief and being sad about it and the loss of things, that's exhausting. And feeling broken if yeah. you've been made to feel that way is draining as well. So on the other side of it is when you start to get better, you are less exhausted. You have more energy to do fun things. And then that cascade works in your benefit. Yeah. And as you've said, this is something that you can be helped to do with a physical therapist like Sandy. And you can also be taught to be able to carry out some of these tactics and, and strategies on your own. What's so amazing about this, I used to think physical therapy, I was like, physical therapy, why, why? I don't have time for that. You know, like yeah. I, like I can, right. But actually to me, it's like, I'm so glad that the word therapy is there with physical because to me, phys a good physical therapist like Dr. Hilton is somebody who is helping you not just physically improve your experience, but improve your relationship, your intimate, deep, loving, awesome, caring, compassionate relationship with your own body. And we deserve to have that. Absolutely. We've been taught to hate our bodies for freaking ever. And, and I am not a scientist, so I can say what 
whatever <laughs> I want. I don't care if there's no research on this. I am absolutely convinced that if you are taught to hate your body, then that that system, that exquisite system that requires your brain and your mind is going to be out of balance. It's at a disadvantage, but there is research. If you look at the professional athlete studies, no one tells a professional athlete, visualize yourself losing. <laughs> exactly. Visualize yeah. your time being 0.7 seconds slower than before. We don't use that power against ourselves in sports and business and public speaking and all that stuff, but we sort of are conditioned to do it a little bit when it comes to our healthcare. Just accept that and you're just always going to not be okay with that. Just stop running or, well, don't have sex. You've already had a couple kids. You could just not have sex anymore. And and these minimized, diminishing, you are less than comments, which are just garbage. And we need to reject them for each other because sometimes we don't do it so well for our own self so often that it becomes habit for us to even do it for ourselves. But if you're one that it's easier to do it for yourself first, Mm -hmm. rock on. Like they say in the airplanes, put your own mask on before you help someone else. But work on it because it it is, and I made a joke earlier, it's like, if you say you hate your uterus, it can hear you. There is Mick Thacker, Michael Thacker, a really smart researcher and physio that said a comment to me once, it was in 2010, and it changed so much the way my brain worked when he was talking about how our immune system protects us, right? Yes. All right. It's a protective thing, helps eat viruses and all of that. But if there's a part of us that we would rather not be part of us, is it protecting it? And I was just, I put my pen down and closed the notebook and I was just sitting there in the lecture hall going, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, totally. If you could see my face right now. And so many thoughts were going in my head. It's like, whoa. So those comments like, oh, it's my stupid foot. It's like, whoa, nope, you're great. (laughs) And see yourself winning this race. (laughs) I can see see the screenplay right now on this horror film, which is like how you, like a a quiet, it could actually be a silent movie. We don't even need to have more than one character. But imagine if what you criticized about yourself literally disappeared. Right. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, my hips are so big. Well, what if my hips literally disappeared? Right. So, yeah, that is that is so wild. Really important. Okay, there's no monster. It's okay. It's just a shadow on the wall. (laughs) But but it's true. Totally. And it's powerful because when we go, oh, yeah, that's a real that's a moment when things shift inside forever. When you get to have those aha moments like that. From a research perspective, leave us with the biggest question that you are most excited to get an answer to. The pause is me going through the Rolodex of questions in my head. Like I have to choose. There's so many. Yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. I want an answer to the why me. That, like how come one person can have a baby and not have any pelvic pain and another person can have a baby and have pelvic pain? How come? What's mm. the difference? What is the cool thing about that person that recovers from a surgery that they don't have any follow-on consequences? And can we find out what that is and teach it to other people? You know, is it a thought? Is it a chemical mm-hmm. you kind of thing? Is it, you know, what is it? What's, why? Why does one person suffer with persistent pain and another with technically the same diagnosis not? What's going on with the one that doesn't? And can we learn from that? 
because that would be super exciting. I think that would make it more elegant to treat. Yeah. And on the flip side, is the person experiencing chronic pain, do they have a sensitivity that that has a really important reason for being? Mm-hmm. Or has it just kind of an artifact that forgot to stop? Exactly. Yeah. Not not in a classic sense. Like that would be the classic sense. Like it's getting agitated or uh, overwhelmed or over overstimulated. But then in the non-classic sense, from an evolutionary perspective, is that an example of something that, you know, that we can get real excited about? Because once we get through the bugs of it being a problem, we're going to get to the other side and discover that it's actually some sort of like amazing thing. And then this is where all the scientists that are listening to us go, okay, we're going to check out on this conversation. Wait, what? I think there is some, some, where are they going? Some piece of that could be predictive. And which is why I get very excited about the research that's being done around period pain, menstrual pain, and endometriosis is if we, what would happen? And there's longitudinal studies being done on this. What would happen if we identify young girls that are having painful periods, help them not hurt every month, would those people then go on to have less likelihood for having persistent pelvic or visceral problems? If we remove that monthly sensitization, yeah, for sure, it would make sense mm-hmm. that those people then would not have problems or be less likely to have problems later because we wouldn't be sensitizing their system. So what if, because we can't go back, but what if going forward, we identify young women that are having painful periods and help them? within two months. Right then. It would only take that second period to know, whoa, still hate it. What if that was an immediate, oh, let's calm that down so it's not something you have to suffer and endure as your role as a female and not predispose them in the future. That would be, I think that would be an exciting thing. Those are yeah, that's brilliant words of guidance to all parents out there. It, like, it, you know, your child is nine, 10 years old and early onset of menstruation or 10, 11, 12 and experiencing pain out of the gate. Not normal. Not at all no, normal. Not okay. Don't let it continue. Like really not okay. <laughs> and think about when you were nine or 10, if your parents told you that something that was super unsettling, potentially scary, disturbing, or what have you was normal, how that would affect how you viewed being alive on this planet. That That's like a stress ball planted. I'm absolutely sending you the picture from that book. <laughs> it is. It's like, it's this, you have to accept this condition and there's nothing you can do about it. Complaining about it just means you're weak. It's like, absolutely not. We're just going to blow that all out and say, what if we say there is no need for you to suffer? Let's help you not suffer. And those are not, that doesn't mean you have to stay on birth control forever. It just means maybe half an hour walk, a hot shower, a little warm pack on your belly and learning some self-treatment to get everything around your uterus to feel okay. So the uterus itself is the only thing bothered, but it's not bothering your back or your belly or anybody else, just the uterus. And then it's mm-hmm. gone and you don't have to think, oh, I can't go to school. I can't even concentrate to read. We take all those unnecessary components out. That would just be so profound. I mean, like that'd be it. I would love it. And then I would, yeah, I could wave my magic wand. Well, I have lots of lists, but I would make that really high on my list. Yeah. High on my list too. Absolutely. Well, 
Sandy, I can't thank you enough. This has been amazing. I hope that you will come back on when other research hits that you're thrilled about. And it's just, there's so many other things that we could talk about. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for your time. Can you please let people know where they can find you? So entropy.physio is our website domain. So the name of the clinic is Entropy Physiotherapy, and you can always find us through there. Sarah Haig, my business partner, and I, it's not like, hey, I'm going to go read all the things on our website, but you can contact me through there. <laughs> I do tend to hang out on Twitter right now, but social media is kind of weird. So the website for the clinic is probably the best place. Yeah. So check that out. And then also there's some talks that I saw that you've given on YouTube. And But just generally follow the people who are following the research. Like that's, that is the best piece of advice I can give you as a non-clinician that by following the people who are following the research, you will over time and you don't have to do it in a weekend. It's, we're not cramming for like a master's exam here. Over time, you will become, I believe it's kind of calming (laughs) because it's like, okay, good. There's adults on duty out there in the world who are looking at this stuff and I can just focus on taking care of me. That's really good, right? That's how I feel about my research. So thank you for being an adult on duty. (laughs) I'm like, they're doing the studies. I'm going to be infinitely. (laughs) You go be the adults. I'm going to take the information I got and I'm going to be infantry, infinitely practical PT of, all right, how can I help you? I'm going to help you feel better right now. And these smart people are going to go learn more. Yeah, I love that. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Chicago is is really fortunate to have you. And we're fortunate to have had you on Hello Uterus. And thank you so much for sharing the cool stuff that we don't often get to talk mm-hmm. about when we're in the middle of a therapy session or, you know, it's right. just so, it's it's fun. I really love it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This is great. I love what you're doing. It's so needed. Thank you, Dr. Sandy Hilton out of Chicago. I'm learning so much about pelvic pain therapy from these amazing doctors, and I hope you are too. We are going to be right back with Ending on a High Note that takes us to Papua New Guinea. There once was a bird, well, a pigeon pheasant to be exact. It kind of looks like a black horse with a camel-colored saddle, and it's been MIA for a really long time. An organization called Rewild, it's spelled R-E colon wild, so cool, placed a total of 12 camera traps on the slopes of Mount Kilcarran, which is the island's highest mountain, and they placed another eight cameras in locations where local hunters reported seeing the bird in the past. And these camera traps, by the way, just cameras, they're not trapping these birds. But anyway, so they go there for a month. They're climbing around in the jungle. They're climbing up mountains. They're watching. They're looking at film. They're going to get the cameras and fast forwarding and rewinding and looking for this bird and they're not finding it. And of course, just before getting ready to throw in the towel, they spot one. It doesn't matter where you live in the world or what your language is. There is only one word that is universally appropriate in situations like this. Take a listen. And finally for us tonight, a bird that was thought to have been extinct has been found alive in Papua New Guinea. The black-naped pheasant pigeon recently seen on a camera that researchers set up in a forest right there. That bird hasn't been seen in 140 years. Researchers don't know how many of these birds there are right now, but scientists say Of course, it's an exciting discovery. How do you like that? Christina Biggs, the manager for the search for lost species at Rewild, 
isn't that the greatest job title ever? The manager for the search for lost feces. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think I know a better title. Like it just has, it has such an amazing amount of coolness in it. Just so, so, so funny. So wild. <sighs> Puns. Anyway, Christina Biggs says, this rediscovery is an incredible beacon of hope for other birds that have been lost for a half century or more. And that's true. I mean, could you imagine? Birds are amazing. They migrate. They follow the electrical grid that's on the planet. They can go for days without food. And they're just so wild. And personally, as, as a kid, I really discounted the cool factor of birds. You know, they're just birds to me. But in my later years, as I become, I don't know, less judgy, I have really fallen in love with birds and watching them fly and reading stories about how they do what they do and all the colors and the way they dance and the fact that they can learn a language and speak, you know, speak, mimic our languages. They're all just so amazing. And so to know that there was one bird that could have been extinct, but now we find because of Christina Biggs, the manager for the search for lost species, we find that it's still alive. So an incredible pigeon pheasant, you cute camel colored little black bird. You're just awesome. And I'm really glad that they found you. And we'll we'll have the link to the video because it's hilarious. You got to see it on our Instagram, which is at uterine kind. Thank you to Dr. Hilton. Thank you to everyone tuning in. And thank you to Angel and Marielle for producing the podcast and being part of one hell of a dedicated team at Uterine Kind. We are preparing for a big announcement come December 1st, so stay tuned. And coming up on the show, more on pelvic pain, an episode on adenomyosis, an interview with the director of the endo documentary Below the Belt, and an interview with a renowned researcher getting at the brain uterus connection, Dr. Heather Bumonte Nelson. So subscribe where you get your podcasts. Please give us a review and tell your friends. The more of you here, the more we can accomplish together for those living with chronic conditions that impact the female system. Till then, be well, be cool, be kind. The Hell Eaters podcast is for informational use only. The content shared here is not used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. Please ask your physician about your health and call 911 if it's an emergency. And thank you, Uterine Kind, for listening.